I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Seth Gershenson, Associate Professor of Public Policy at American University's School of Public Affairs. Seth's article, The Power of Teacher Expectations, How Racial Bias Hinders Student Attainment, which he co-authored with Nicholas Papageorge of Johns Hopkins University, will appear in the winter 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Seth, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and your article is incredibly ambitious. It seeks to demonstrate both that teachers' expectations for how much schooling their students will complete are racially biased, and that those expectations actually matter for how much schooling students actually complete. Let's start by probing the the second one a little bit, and I assume what led you to set off down this research path why might it be the case that teachers' expectations for their students' performance would matter? Uh, well, that's a good question, I, and I think that there's a few uh, mechanisms or reasons that these effects might operate, uh, uh, all of which come back to the basic fundamental idea of self-fulfilling prophecies, where expectations uh, that might be initially biased or might be initially incorrect end up creating a feedback loop that causes the students to change their behaviors in a way that makes their actual outcome look like what was initially an incorrect belief on the part of the teacher. So one way that this might happen is that if the teacher signals implicitly or even directly states things about expectations to students, Students might change their mind about what's possible or what the right path for them is uh, and and deter them from a a path that they would have been otherwise on. Uh, Another story would be that, you know, teachers have a very difficult job with very limited resources, limited time. And if a teacher incorrectly believes that a student doesn't have college potential or thinks that uh, a student's going to struggle in a particular subject, that teacher might reallocate the resources to focus more on other students that they think do have a, have a better chance at success. And then when those resources get pulled away from a particular student, then we might see the, the poor outcome for that student. Uh, so those are the two sort of main uh, mechanisms that we think could be happening, both of which lead to this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy type of outcome. And what's so tricky, I guess, about documenting the importance of expectations empirically is that teachers could also be responding to real differences in students that would lead them to complete different amounts of schooling uh, in the same way, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, that's the fundamental um, difficulty that for a long time this literature has sort of struggled to get around. Uh, And it's simply the idea that When we do see a systematic gap by race or by socioeconomic status in teachers' expectations, uh, that gap could be very real and accurate in the sense that teachers are accurately reporting on and hypothesizing on pre-existing differences in achievement or pre-existing differences in school quality or neighborhood quality and things like that. So what we're really trying to do in this work is to separate out what part of that forecast or what part of that expectation is accurate and what part of it is systematically biased. 
so you start off by documenting that if we just look at what teachers on average report in terms of how much schooling they expect their students to complete, and we compare the teachers of white students with teachers of black students, we find that teachers expect 58% of white high school students, but just 37% of black high school students to obtain at least a four-year college degree. So that's one of the headline patterns. Help us understand how that in and of itself can lead to the conclusion that, in fact, teachers' expectations are not just reflecting differences in reality, but, but are actually biased. Yeah, so, so that statistic is sort of a jumping-off point for our, our first research question, first analysis. Uh, and like you said, that racial gap in expectations is uh, is well documented, and other scholars have, have documented it and tried to describe it. And what we're going to do is acknowledge that, yes, on average, white and black students in the U.S. attend very different uh, types of high schools, sort of have different eighth-grade test scores prior to coming into high school. So on average, they look different. So what we're, what we're going to try to do to figure out if the expectations are accurate forecasts or biased, we're going to exploit the fact that in a large nasty representative survey uh, conducted by the U.S. Department of Education oh, about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I guess 15 years ago now, uh, that surveyed two teachers per student. And both teachers were surveyed at the exact same time. So for student A, student A's math teacher and reading teacher both simultaneously stated their belief about how far student A would go in school. And then what we're going to do is identify discrepancies, uh, cases of where the two teachers disagreed about a given student's potential, and then try to see if we can predict, uh, systematically predict those discrepancies. And what we do, uh, sort of the, the main result there, is that when there was a racial mismatch between the two teachers, when there was a white teacher and a black teacher simultaneously evaluating the same student, uh, they systematically disagreed. And we, we showed that systematically, when a black student has both a black and a white teacher, the black teacher has a systematically higher belief that the student will uh, complete a four-year college degree. And we interpret that systematic difference as evidence of systematic bias and expectations. So one of the things you point out in the article is that, in general, teachers are too optimistic about the amount of schooling that their students are likely to complete. And so one way to think about your findings is that that sense of optimism, at least for white teachers, doesn't extend in the same way to their black students. Is that a fair way of summarizing your findings? Uh, yeah, that's right. So the, uh, just even in the simple descriptives, it's something, it's something like a 20 percentage point over-optimism. Uh, and that applies that the size of that optimism in the raw statistics is there for both black and white students. Uh, and, and this is related to a, a, an even subtler point about this basic finding of a racial mismatch bias and expectations, which is that uh, in, in that initial result I just described, 
We don't know whether it's the black teachers who are too optimistic or the white teachers who are too pessimistic about black students, or maybe it's a combination of both. But, but that sort of finding that there is this bias, but we don't know quite exactly how big it is uh, and what exactly is driving it, that's another one of the factors that led us to want to pursue the second line of questioning, which is to try to figure out something about the actual size of the bias and, and how that bias affects student outcomes in the long run. Right. So the bias in and of itself is troubling, but it's particularly troubling if we think that these expectations really matter, as in do play a role in becoming self-fulfilling prophecies in a way that would lock in current disparities of uh, uh, in educational attainment. Now, as I suggested earlier in the conversation, documenting the causal effect of a teacher's expectations has to be one of the more challenging questions that I've seen a researcher try to take on. So help us understand the strategies that you and Nicholas used to try to really pin this down. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely a, a challenging problem. And uh, because of that, we use three different, uh, somewhat related, but also clearly different strategies to try to triangulate the effect of, of bias on student outcomes. Uh, and while there might be some, some nitpicky concerns with any one of them in a vacuum, what we argue is that together these three different approaches all yield very similar results. And the fact that they all yield similar results, despite relying on different assumptions and different modeling techniques, that lends, I think, further uh, credibility to the estimates. So I mentioned before that there are two teachers per student, and we're, again, we're going to leverage that fact in, in all three of our strategies. So the first strategy is going to uh, sort of use one teacher's expectation to control for the background unobserved factors that might normally plague a regression analysis. So usually we think of control variables like you know family income and things like that. Uh, and what we're trying to do there is to control for the confounders that might jointly predict teacher expectations on the right-hand side of the model and student outcomes on the left-hand side of the model. And, and we certainly do have a lot of rich control variables of that sort. But then we're going to go a step further and use the second teacher's expectation to control even further for those unobserved confounders that might affect both the second teacher's expectation and the student outcome. So you're going to try and see how much a teacher's expectation seems to matter, even controlling for what her peers have said about the very same student. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and the reason we're able to do that is, because, is, again, because there's a fair amount of disagreement between teachers. So that's the first strategy. Uh, and then, you know, again, that's, it's not perfect. You might, have, you might have some concerns with it. So then we move on to, to two more strategies to really try to, to figure out what's going on and, and what the true effect is. So the second strategy is what's known as an instrumental variable strategy. And here, uh, we use an instrumental variable to try to isolate some of the random variation in teachers' expectations. So again, 
uh, even though there's no random experiment here, we can imagine that certain factors uh, that are essentially random might tip a teacher into having slightly higher or slightly lower expectations for a student. And a good example of this is uh, suppose that a student is in a first period morning math class with a lot of their friends also in the class. Uh, and as a result, they tend to goof off a little bit more in class. They're a little bit less attentive because they're talking to their friends. And then Suppose that in the second period English class, they're in a classroom with uh, none, none of their close friends. So then when they go to that second period English class, they're a little more focused, a little more attentive because they have less distractions, less uh, you know, distracting peers in the classroom. Well, that was a purely sort of random mix of students into each of the two classrooms. And neither of those scenarios really represents the teacher's, uh, sorry, the student's true level of attentiveness or true level of interest in school. But as a result of that classroom dynamic, shifting the student's behavior just a tiny bit, we'd have a situation where the math teacher would be a little bit more pessimistic about the student's potential based on the behavior they saw, while the English teacher might be a little more optimistic because of the, the attentive behavior that they saw. So that's an example of something that we normally would never know about in a, in a data set like this. But uh, in this educational longitudinal study, this big national survey, they did ask a rich battery of questions exactly of this sort to both of the teachers. So both teachers reported, how attentive is student A in your class? Does student A enjoy math? Uh, things like that. Uh, is student A passive in your class? So we're going to exploit these within student differences in how the teachers uh, perceive and rate their interest in school and so on. And we're going to use those as instrumental variables that are going to help us to sort of separate out the true accurate forecast part of the teacher's expectation from the idiosyncratic random variation in the teacher's expectation that's caused by arguably random things like that. Uh, another example might be that, you know, the student uh, steps in a puddle on the way to school and their shoes are wet and they're frustrated, and then they bump into the teacher in the hallway and they're grumpy, and the teacher then sort of internalizes that interaction and thinks, oh, well, this student's grumpy, they don't like school or whatever. So we're trying to isolate those sorts of random factors that don't affect whether you go to college or not, but do affect the teacher's expectation for you. And that's the, the textbook definition of a good instrumental variable. So we go ahead and do that analysis uh, with these instrumental variables, and both sort of eyeballing the numbers and also doing a formal test, uh, we fail to reject that the IV estimates are significantly different from the uh, simple estimates I described before that just control for the other teacher's expectation. So that's an example of where these two different strategies that you're using that rely on very different assumptions that's uh, right. are yielding results that seem to point in the same direction, not just with expectations matter, but giving you a similar answer with respect to the magnitude of how much expectations matter. Exactly. Yeah, and, and as researchers, that's, that's reassuring. So in a sense, what we're doing is sort of 
you know, we're sort of replicating our results internally using different methods. So it's always uh, reassuring to see that these different methods are, are sort of squaring up with one another. And just give us then very briefly insight into your third strategy, which again plays this same role of confirming what you found with the other two. That's right. So the, the third strategy is the most technical of the three, and, it, and it's called a latent variable model, or some people might call it a measurement error model. And here what we do is use a latent variable to model and attempt to estimate each student's sort of true probability of completing college. And then we use that sort of true probability that we estimate using a, a fairly complex structural model to then compare that to the teacher's actual expectations. So this sort of this estimated probability of college completion, uh, we're going to sort of view as the truth, and then we're going to compare the, how far the teacher's expectations were from that truth. And this approach allows you to return to this issue of optimism because you have something that is you know, you're interpreting at least as a true predictor of mm -hmm. college completion. You also then have the explicit expectations as stated by teachers. And so uh, tell us where you take that analysis. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and uh, that's the main advantage of this third approach is that in addition to uh, being able to estimate the effect of the biases, which again are consistent with the first two methods, so that's good. But then there's a whole, a whole other um, added value of this uh, third approach, which is that, like you said, we're then able to uncover the whole distribution of teacher biases to figure out what's really going on and how big they are and who's wrong and who's right, uh, if, if either. And what we find, actually, is that none of the teachers are right in the sense that all of the teachers are somewhat biased. Moreover, all of the biases are positive. So actually, on average, no teachers are systematically underpredicting student outcomes. Rather, everybody is too optimistic. And for white students, the race of the teacher doesn't matter much. In other words, for white students, both black and white teachers are equally optimistic. However, for black students, that gap that we documented at the very beginning of the podcast shows up again. And there's a systematic uh, race-based effect on the size, on the bias, and here, it's the black teachers who are more optimistic than the white teachers about the black students. So both white and black teachers are too optimistic. White teachers are less optimistic than black teachers. And here we have a really interesting result, which is that, remember, being less optimistic means you're more accurate. It means you're closer to the truth. So actually, if you're purely looking at who's closer to the truth, the white teacher's lower expectations are a bit more accurate. However, that's not a good thing at all uh, because from an equity standpoint, all students, both black and white, stand to gain tremendously from that optimism. 
So this, uh, what we'll call selective lack of optimism for black students, is actually uh, hurting black students and in the sense of, of lowering their chances of completing college and continuing to these persistent racial gaps in college completion. So talk a little bit about how large these effects of expectations on actual attainment are. You have made a, a convincing case that you're getting similar results across the three methods that all show that expectations matter. How much do they matter? For the, for the probability of completing college, um, a teacher having a teacher who expects you to complete college increases the chances that you do by about 15 percentage points. Uh, and and that, that number is fairly consistent across all the different models that we've, uh, that we've talked about. That sounds like a huge number to me, going from essentially no belief that the student will complete college to something akin to 100% certainty. Right. So, yeah, I was, I was about to say that the, there's a big caveat to that, to that number uh, because, like you said, that's the effect of a teacher having zero be- belief that you'll graduate college to being 100% certain. And, and that's what I would call an out-of-sample prediction. So a much, more, a much more meaningful number would be to say either an elasticity or to simply say, well, moving the needle from being 70% sure that someone will graduate college to being 80% sure, that 10 percentage point bump in positive expectations uh, increases the probability of completing college by about one and a half percentage points. Uh, and, and that number is uh, much more palatable. And it's also right in line with other estimates that we've seen of high school and K-12 interventions on long-run outcomes like college going. So, for example, uh, Studenarski and Diane Schonsenbach and Josh Hyman have a nice paper using the Tennessee Star experimental data where they estimate the effect of being in a small class in grade school on college completion. Uh, And they actually find a very similar effect of that intervention to what we find here. And, of course, one of the challenges with a reform like class size reduction is that it's quite expensive. Teacher expectations, it seems like the uh, it's exactly the opposite, uh, is one implication that we just need to make teachers more optimistic about everyone. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that that is a policy implication for sure. Um, although I'd, I'd go even a little further and say it's, it's not necessarily for everyone because the expectations are high uh, for a lot of students. The, the issue is really um, to, to raise expectations for underrepresented minority groups and students from more disadvantaged backgrounds. And the cost example is exactly right because we do have some promising, rigorous uh, field experimental data on some light-touch interventions and workshops that can and do uh, boost teachers' expectations for these disadvantaged students. And uh, scaling those types of interventions up, I think, is a very uh, useful and cost-effective idea. Over the long run, of course, I think your results also speak to the value of continued efforts to increase the diversity of the teaching force. We know that this is an area where uh, I, I guess we've seen an accumulation of evidence uh, 
calling attention to the value of having teachers of color for the educational performance, either their achievement, their likelihood of experience exclusionary discipline, in the case of your research, their attainment of having teachers of color. And we know that the representativeness of the teaching force is not where we need to be. Uh, do you think your results sort of, again, add to the uh, urgency of efforts in that area? Uh, yes, I absolutely do. Um, and the reason, and I also think you're right that, that that's more of a, of a longer term goal because uh, fixing the pipeline shortage overnight um, sort of can't happen and getting more teachers overnight can't happen because there's a, you know, a several year pipeline into the teaching profession and into schools. So I, I absolutely think that this is, you know, additional evidence and additional support for programs and policies and just general thinking about how to uh, induce and improve the diversity of the teaching force. I will say that the other thing to think about in the short run is that part of the, one of the sources of the lack of diversity in the teaching force is that retainment is much lower among teachers of color. So increasing the pipeline, getting more uh, underrepresented groups into teaching is certainly a laudable goal. But another critical uh, priority needs to be retaining and supporting the teachers who we already have uh, and keeping them in the teaching force. And that can mean, you know, additional support, um, especially in, in under-sourced schools or under-resourced uh, schools and uh, mentoring opportunities and things like that to make sure that we don't uh, lose sight of, of retaining the teachers that we do have. My guest today has been Seth Gershenson, Associate Professor of Public Policy at American University and co-author of The Power of Teacher Expectations, available now at educationnext.org. Seth, congratulations on the research, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the 100 episodes we've recorded since we launched in 2015. Talk to you next week.